support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Hello once again. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Joe Wren in for Bob Zaltzberg today. And, of course, with me, Mary Catherine Carmichael. Thanks for coming in today. And Hi, Joe. Thank you for filling hello. in. We're glad you're here. I'm excited. Yeah. And today we're talking bats in Indiana, especially with <clears throat> the new information. Just at the end of January, just heard that white-nose syndrome has now been confirmed in the state of Indiana. And we have two guests with us today, Dr. Kevin Murray with Western Ecosystems Technology Incorporated and Dr. Keith Clay with the IU Department of Biology. Thank you both for, to you for being here as well today. Thank you. The phone number to call is 812-855-0811 to join the discussion or online at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition where we have a live chat. I want to start with just a really like dumb 101 type of question. How does the fungus kill the bat? What effect does it have on the bat's functions? Take that. Um, well, basically... The, the fungus grows on the, the skin surface of the bat and also on the nose, and that's where it gets the, the name, the white-nose syndrome. Um, but what happens is it, it causes – these are hibernating bats, and the, the fungus thrives in the hibernacula, uh, very cold and humid conditions. And um, basically the bats uh, go into hibernation or torpor, and over a period of the winter, they will wake up periodically or arouse periodically – um, and then go back into hibernation. And they usually do that about once every two weeks. And what this fungus seems to be doing is causing them to wake up more often, about once every week or so. And that is making them deplete their fat reserves for the winter uh, before the winter is over and basically causing them to starve to death. Or if they fly out of the, the cave to try to find food in the middle of winter, there's, of course, no food. And right. So they, they can die that way as well. Wow. So what do they usually do when they wake up for those brief little intervals? Well, they, we're not really sure why they do it, and it just seems to be a, a physiological requirement that they arouse periodically. And they, they will move around, but sometimes they don't. So they, they don't really do that much in general. They'll move a little bit in the cave. They may, they may not move at all, but they don't do what they do with white-nose syndrome, which is uh, you'll see a lot of bats flying around, and often when it gets really bad in a cave, you'll see bats kind of circling in the uh, the entrances to caves, and that's a bad sign usually. Oh wow! Okay, so now what are the little what are the bats we usually see in our neighborhoods? Um, well, we have about I believe twelve to fourteen species uh, in the area and in in Indiana, and a few of those are urban species. And so, probably the most common ones we would see would be little brown bats mm-hmm. and big brown bats. And they can live in uh, structures or, they, or they're adapted to, to live in parks or, you know, rural settings around mm-hmm. urban areas. So that's probably what we'd be seeing. Are both of those species affected by white-nose? Is it white-nose syndrome? So, yes, white-nose syndrome? Yes. yes, they both are. And mm-hmm. one of those species, the big brown bat, seems to be a species that's less affected. So in the caves that are, that are really being hit hard by white-nose syndrome, about – 50% of the big browns are dying, whereas with a few of the other species, as, as high as uh, basically 99 to 100% of the bats are dying. So oh it does affect different species differently. And that's one reason to have a little bit of hope for for the bat species. You're, you're obviously very knowledgeable about this. You might tell us a little bit about your background. I, I heard well, you mentioned it before the show, but I'm sure our listeners would like to know about it also. Well, I started a, a master's degree at Missouri State University. I uh, worked with a, a, an expert named uh, Dr. Lynn Robbins and basically got into um, identifying the echolocation calls of bats as a survey technique. And then I went to the University of Miami, worked for Dr. Ted Fleming, and, and did uh, the genetics of bats in the Caribbean. Um, and so I've just been working with bats in different species and different parts of the, of the world for about 10 to 12 years now. Okay. And how about yourself, Dr. Uh, Clay? Uh, I'm not an expert on bats. I'm an ecologist, but I'm interested in uh, disease and fungal pathogens, both of which are in play here. And uh, we have done a little bit of work on bats. Um, 
one research project in the lab uh, deals with ticks, and we've gone to a number of bat roosts to collect bat ticks off uh, bats. This is in the summertime when uh, they're roosting in attics and barns and structures uh, rather than in the caves, the hiber- winter hibernacula. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about millions of bats that are dying from this, which is um, pretty drastic. And I don't know that people understand the effects of of what happens when we lose the bat. Can right. Why, why is this a big that? deal? Yeah. Why should we care? Well, um, bats the, uh, bats in this area are insectivorous. I think they feed almost entirely on insects, and they eat a lot of insects. Um, things like mosquitoes or crop pests may uh, be less controlled in the absence of bats. Of course, birds also eat many insects. Uh, that would, I think, be the primary um, ecological consequence of the loss of bats would be increased insect populations, uh, some of which may be good, others we would rather not see. Mm-hmm. So they're a major part of the food chain, per se. Absolutely. And then in, in terms of trying to limit the disease, and of course this started back on the East Coast, I believe, New York, West Virginia, and has slowly been spreading uh, toward Indiana. And um, I guess, though there have been uh, many steps being taken to try and prevent this by closing caves, and a lot of people go to the state parks and are wondering, why are the caves closed? And uh, so part of the whole research and and effort in this is education, which is kind of why we're also here today to let people know what what can people do to try and help prevent the spread of the white nose syndrome? Well... Unfortunately, right now, uh, our options are are pretty limited in in preventing its spread. Um, I think the cave closures in the state parks and some of the national uh, park systems now is starting to spread further west, and it's becoming pretty commonplace across the country. And so that's a first step to really try to slow the spread of white-nose syndrome is is just to limit the amount of of human traffic in and out of caves. Um, And that that has some potential to at least slow the, the, the transmission because the, the fungus can be transferred very easily on boots or clothing from cave to cave. And we think there's even a possibility that it arrives in the United States hmm. uh, from, from Europe from a person. And so yeah. at this point, we think the, the main way it's being spread is, is uh, by bats moving because they, they'll move over hundreds of miles um, moving from hibernacula to their summer reproductive areas. So they're probably the ones transmitting the disease uh, more than anything. But at the same time, by just obeying the uh, basically the, the rules right now with the cave closures, you can at least limit that spread and, and slow down that spread of the disease. And it Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just was wondering if you, you mentioned with the little brown bat that uh, percentage is really frighteningly high. You, you even said 99 to 100% can be affected. Does this... Um, really have the potential to wipe out a species? Um, we think it has the potential to wipe out uh, multiple species at this point. Mm-hmm. And the little brown is one of the most common species in the eastern United States, and, and actually in the entire United States. And there's a, a science paper a few months ago that basically predicted within about 20 to 30 years the local extinction of the little brown bat in the northeast oh, due to this disease. And yeah. so that's a species that was one of the most common species is now thought there's a really good chance that it could go extinct, at least in certain areas. We have a caller on hold on. I'll get to her in just one second. But I wanted to ask, I know we have one and a lot of our neighbors have bat houses. Is there anything um, that we need to do with our bat houses to help prevent this? Is there anything that we can do to help? Um, at this point, I would, I would say no. Um, there are some studies, some research projects that are looking at artificial roost and, and potentially treating those with some kind of fungicide mm-hmm. that, can, that can kill the, the fungus. Um, but that research is ongoing. We don't really know the results of it yet. So potentially in a year or two, there might be something you can do at a bat house to try to limit its spread. But mm-hmm. at this point, we don't really have any options. So stay tuned for that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, we've got a call on the line. Let's go to Barbara. Hi, Barbara. Yeah, hi. Um, I was a little disappointed that you don't have anyone there representing the DNR because I, I do I would like to pass this information on to both these gentlemen in case they uh, have any influence over state policy. Mm-hmm. And um, I hike regularly at McCormick's Creek, and I know that the cave is supposedly closed for the last two years. And um, 
all that was done was like some kind of sawhorse type barrier set in front of the cave and a sign and every time almost every time i hiked that trail there were people adults and children going into and through the cave as if nothing was wrong and every person in the park whose attention i tried to draw to this since i do in fact have a a biology background um they all said well it's up to the property manager it's up to the property manager and you know i contacted indianapolis and they were like well it's up to each individual property manager and you know when i pointed out that this cave isn't really closed they just you know they just sort of blew me off so that's one point the other point is the um commercial caves remaining open i mean all of this is perhaps irrelevant since it's already here but but maybe not um, the commercial caves in Indiana is still open, and also the one at Spring Mill that you take a boat ride through. Um, it just so happens that a good friend of mine in Albany County, New York, where this was first discovered, is a biologist for that county. And I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, and he said the evidence now points that this was probably introduced from France by a tourist into a commercial cave in New York that has a waterway through it, and that was how it originally started spreading. So I guess my second question is, why then is the cave that has a waterway through it at Spring Mill still open, and why then are these commercial caves, um, one of which has a boat ride, you know, why are they still open? I mean, this ecologically, you know, this is an extremely serious matter, as I'm sure both the guests recognize, and... Uh, at least the property manager at McCormick's Creek apparently doesn't take it seriously. So um, I guess, you know, my first part of my question is, do either of you gentlemen who are experts have any influence over um, the people in Indianapolis who are supposedly closing the caves? And uh, then also these uh, private cave owners who I realize are concerned for their livelihood, but I don't think these people realize the, the potential seriousness ecologically of you know the demise of bats so i'll hang up and listen uh over the radio thank you barbara appreciate your call well i think the dnr is very concerned about uh, white nose syndrome in the indiana bat populations um the cave that the caller mentioned at McCormick's Creek, uh, I think that may be Wolf Cave, which many of us have been into. I suspect that would not be a significant hibernacula, given its small size. Um, the commercial caves, my understanding is the closing only applies to public properties. There's no restrictions uh, or um, you know legal avenues to... Um, do anything about privately owned properties. And we have to keep in mind as well, at least in southern Indiana, we're in the midst of the heaviest karst topography in the state. There are thousands, millions of caves, many of which probably are undiscovered. Um, You can be hiking through the woods and there's a small opening that leads to quite a large cave. I think uh, effectively controlling Cave uh, entrances is probably uh, a very difficult, if not impossible, task. Hmm. You know, as a confirmed claustrophobic, this is all news to me because I wouldn't be caught dead in a cave. So it's it's very interesting. But so there are people, who, private cave owners. Then do they let people uh, pay to go in and go through their cave, or how does this? They may know. It it really varies. I mean, there are there are commercial caves that are on private land, and and that's their basically their livelihood, and that's what uh, you know where they make most of their money. And and there are uh, smaller operations where they just might charge anyone who's interested five or twenty dollars to come. And and sometimes they don't want anyone going mm-hmm. into the cave. Sometimes it's open, and and they welcome people to come in and explore. So it's really with with the public land and the public caves. It's it's really. You know, it could be almost anything. Pretty hard to control. Yeah. Yeah. We've got another call that's come in. Let's go to Sam. Uh, hello? Hi, Sam. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. I'm a longtime cave-interested person. Uh, I'm also one of the owners of Blue Spring Caverns hmm. down in southern Indiana. Mm-hmm. And the previous caller was talking about uh, wanting to know why these caves with with waterways are open and it's very simple the the fungus lives of course on the bats but also can be found in the soils of the cave and these places with streams don't have the soils and so they there's perceived not to be a problem the other point really like to make is 
that uh, tape closures are for the fear of that people might be able to transmit it. There is no real evidence, even that that's only a hypothesis that uh, a tourist from Europe brought it over. It is a has been found to be a similar fungus, although it's not exactly the same fungus that's found in Europe. And uh, as far as visitation by people, bats spread it so fast that really it's all, it seems to be inconsequential. The, the visitation by people seems to be inconsequential. Uh, we can applaud the the efforts to uh, to want to slow the spread, but uh, it's futile. What it really looks like is, of course, the agencies have to look like they're doing something. And if they did nothing, they'd be criticized. And so they're doing something that seems logical, like closing, trying to close the caves. Uh, but it really looks ineffective. It's, it's, we're just, I think we're just doomed to let this thing run out. And, of course, other species have had uh, problems, too. And bats aren't the only one. So it's a sad thing, but it's probably just going to run its course. Sam, is, is Blue Springs Cavern, uh, is that a hibernacula? Do you have hi- hibernating uh, bats there? We have, There are very few bats, uh, particularly in the region that we use. Mm-hmm. It's extremely few. Uh-huh. Okay. And uh, uh, because it does, the cave does flood, they've long ago figured out that that's not the place to be. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Kevin, do you want to respond to Sam at all? Well, I just want to... To, to try to clear up a couple things, and then this goes to the comments of both callers. And, and number one is we don't really know the origin right now. They what they that's right. Re- the real origin really don't know. Um, as far as I know, there's there's a similar species in Europe, and they right. the limited research they've done has shown that a part of its genetic sequence is identical. Now that's only you know a single marker or single part of that, but at least that right. section is identical. That doesn't mean it's the same, but it mm-hmm. also doesn't mean that it's different. Um, also, um, as far as exactly if it came from Europe or how it was spread by a tourist or, I mean, we just don't have that information right now. And it is a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and one more thing about controlling the spread, the cave closures is one option, but also if people are moving into and out of caves, especially in some of these commercial caves, there are decontamination procedures that they can go through. Exactly. They can and, make sure uh, that their shoes and their, their pants are decontaminated, and they can try not to use things that haven't been decontaminated, especially between different geographic areas. Sam, exactly. oh, I, I just want to ask you, Sam, do you, you do you run tours through Blue Spring Caverns in the winter, or how does this work? We do have group programs in the winter, and actually, that you know, there isn't any bad access anyway, so uh, it, it's kind of a moot point. At least in our entrance, there is one other entrance that could could be used by bats, except that, uh, uh, again, it's a major part of the cave that floods, and it floods fairly frequently uh, in, the early, in, the, in the late winter and early spring. It's not a part of the cave that we use, but nonetheless, it does flood. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you called today. Thank you very much. I appreciate hearing from you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, Dr. Clay? Kevin and the caller uh, raise a couple of interesting uh, issues, uh, but I would like to add that regardless of the origin of this disease, it's here now, and the genie's out of the bottle, so to speak. So um, what's going to happen, and, and what does it mean? There are other uh, potential causal drivers of this epidemic that the bats, for various reasons, are under stress, uh, brought about by other causes that make them more susceptible to disease. Uh, the idea that... Um, their food, the insects may be contaminated with pesticides, weakening their immunological system uh, is certainly a reasonable thing to look at. Um, also, um, you know, we have to think about the potential of uh, climate change. Uh, caves are very stable year-round temperature, but if there are fluctuations in climate above ground, that's going to trickle down, that perhaps the environment, the cave environment has changed subtly enabling the pathogen to be more aggressive than it has been in the past, if it indeed occurred here in the past. Dr. Clay, we've been hearing um, about problems with honeybees. Uh, Similar to this, related? 
Well, uh, I think you're referring to the colony collapse disorder, yes. which is widespread um, all over the country, all over the world. It has a completely um, different cause. Um, in, f- in fact, they don't know for sure exactly what's causing it. But it seems to be a, a syndrome of multiple pathogens acting simultaneously, bat, uh, viruses, uh, mites, fungi, bacteria. But um, one has to think about these things, bats, honeybees. We've heard about amphibian deformities in our waterways. Are these naturally occurring organisms essentially modern-day canaries in a coal mine? Uh, I think that is a very apt uh, mm-hmm. description that they may be indicating to us that there's something wrong in the environment, and uh, they're the first ones to really show it in such a dramatic way. So really they're just lighting the bigger picture. Possibly. Okay. We've got another caller on the line. Let's go, uh, let's go to Dave. Hi, Dave. Hi. I want to thank all you guys for uh, being on the program and talking about this issue. I'm a caver who lives in Bloomington, and it's an issue that's very near and dear to uh, you know, anybody who's serious about caving. It's a tragedy that's happened, and so thanks for uh, getting on the air and discussing it and trying to educate people, which is what we really love to see. Uh, caves, unfortunately, a lot of times make the media in a negative connotation, and this kind of thing certainly doesn't help any. But one of the things I want to encourage Barbara and other pe- people who may be interested in or or concerned about cavers going into caves, not every cave is suspect to spreading this disease around. There's many, many, many caves that don't even have any bats, and uh, there's no danger of spreading something to to a cave that has no bats, such as Wolf Cave. Uh, it's just an example, uh, although it, it seems extremely, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, hypocritical for the IDNR to to run tours in twin caves and then say, well, you know, we don't seem to be concerned about visitor traffic through Wolf Cave. That that That's true. It does seem like a, a not, not a right thing to do there by the very agency that closed the caves is running one and not seeming to care about another one. Anyway, the Wolf Cave in this case, I'd, I'd, from personal experience, would say it would be inconsequential for people to be traveling through there, just as it would for for a lot of caves uh, in, that are similar that just don't have bats. So just kind of wanted to pass that along. Cavers are the ones that have been documenting for years and years and exploring caves and, and determining where the bats are. And we actually have a very good idea through biannual uh, biennial censuses where large numbers of bats uh, hibernate and migrate to during the winter time and uh, these counts have been going on for for many years and so we we have a really good idea at least underground where there are a large number of bats that that have been noted and explored and it's it's all been cavers who have kind of uh, found them I guess you could say and and reported them and and, and are, have been monitoring them for years the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has developed some protocols that will help cavers continue to, like one of the I think gentlemen on the show said, about decontaminating uh, gear. Now that it is confirmed to be here, uh, there's going to be a lot more care taken by those of us that are passionate about protecting the bats and passionate about caving to make sure that we follow protocols that aren't going to cause any harm. Cavers seem like uh, one of those groups that you know a lot of people kind of know each other, and there's a kind of a network. I assume you you kind of uh, hold each other to, to high standards for this sort of thing. We hold ourselves to very high standards. In fact, we tried to talk to the IDNR, and they they did listen to us. Now they didn't agree with what we said or implement what we asked them to, but we asked them to remove the closures on a lot of the caves. And for, for, you know, very specific reasons, or some of which I mentioned, and they chose not to do that. Now that's, you know, that's, they're, they're taking actions that they feel are there in, uh, in the best interest of the bats and in, in the best interest of the public. But what's not getting out, you know, and at first when the media started reporting it, it seemed to be that the common thing was that cavers are transmitting it, uh, you know, from cave to cave, and when when really now I think I, I've, the last few reports I've heard they're actually including the fact that bats 
are transmitting it. And it's possible that cavers are transmitting it as well. But the point taken, there's nobody that cares more about the, the caves and the bats than cavers themselves. <laughs> so we're, we're kind of, we've, we've got a national thing going on uh, with the agencies trying to, you know, help them develop plans to protect and to, to, to research and find out more about what's causing all this. And it's, it's a pretty big deal. For those that may not hear about that in the media, it, there, there is a lot going on. The National Speleological Society has a white-nose syndrome uh, commission, if you will, that's been uh, working at pretty high levels everywhere to, to try to get a grip on this thing. Great information, Dave. Thanks so much for calling in today. We appreciate hearing from you. Well, thank you. Well, we're past the halfway mark on on this show today, so let's go ahead and take our break, and we'll come right back. I think maybe, Dr. Clay, you want to respond to some of this? I saw you making some notes, so we'll come back and, and do that. You're listening to Noon Edition. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcast directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. Programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, The Ether Game, Musical Mini Quiz, as well as Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Find out more at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? On Fridays, the WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Listen at 11.33 a.m., 11.55 a.m., and 5.45 p.m. to catch that day's feature. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Back to Noon Edition. We are back. We are talking about... Bats and white nose syndrome. We're lucky enough. We have uh, Joe Wren in the studio with us today, filling in for Bob Salzberg. Thanks for being here. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you very much. And the phone number to call, 855-0811. And we also have a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And again, we're here with Dr. Kevin Murray with Western Ecosystems Technology, Inc., and Dr. Keith Clay from the IU Biology Department. And Keith, I think you wanted to respond to our last caller. Um. I was responding to uh, a more general issue mm-hmm. than the last caller in particular brought up, but certainly uh, cavers may be um, feeling like they're getting a bad rap. And again, we don't really know a lot of the essential facts that we need to know, uh, whether an uh, epidemic like this will peter out on its own, whether it will result in the loss, extinction of species. Mm-hmm. Uh, We just don't know. But in general, epidemics in nature uh, rarely uh, result in the extinction of species. They tend, as the caller indicated, run their course. Um, It's a very strong selective uh, pressure on the bat populations. There may be certain bats that are inherently resistant. They'll survive and reproduce, and the population over time will recover, and they'll be more uh, resistant to this uh, pathogen. As bat numbers decline, the densities of the populations decline, and the pathogen may have a harder time spreading from one bat to another in low-density situations. So uh, even though this represents a, a serious uh, and growing threat to bats uh, in the eastern United States. Um, I don't think we're necessarily looking at mass extinction of multiple bat species. We'll have to wait and see about that. Okay. We've had another call come in. Let's go right to Craig. Hi, Craig. Go right ahead. Yes. Uh, I worked for a number of years in, uh, for an environmental uh, 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 type job. And one of the things we uh, were always concerned about were bat populations. And uh, I'm wondering, though, I don't pretend to be a, a, um, an expert on bats, but, but uh, as I recall, when you, when you refer to the brown bat, are, are you talking about Myotis sedalis, the uh, Indiana brown bat that has been on the endangered, state endangered species list for a number of years? And uh, 
as I recall anyway, uh, roosting sites and things like that for the Indiana brown bat, if that's the one you're referring to, were not necessarily cave sites. Uh, a lot of dead tree areas uh, with small populations. As I recall, the Indiana brown bat was not one of those that uh, flocks in such great numbers as, say, for instance, uh, the gray nurse bat. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering, is it one of those that is so threatened, if it is the Indiana brown bat you're talking about, uh, or is this a different brown bat you're talking about? And uh, the gray nurse bats, I'm assuming, would be a great risk because they do tend to flock in, in huge numbers. And uh, I'm just more or less asking questions for my own uh, knowledge here, but I wonder if you could uh, give me some uh, some input on that. I'll, I'll get off the phone and let you go ahead with that. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll try to address those questions. Um the, the first bats I mentioned uh, when we started off uh, with the discussion were the little brown bat and the big brown bat, and um, those are not the same as, as what you were just talking about. And I, and I think the Myotis sodalis that you mentioned, that's the scientific name, is referred to as the Indiana bat or the Indiana Myotis in general. And with common names, they're, they're, they can be almost anything, so it's a little confusing with common names. But the Indiana bat is an endangered species. It's both state and federally endangered. And its population is really centered here in Indiana. It's got uh, about 50% of the population hibernates uh, in caves in this state. So they, they don't spend all their time in caves, but in the wintertime and a significant part of the fall, uh, they are in caves. And then what they'll do is migrate to summer reproductive areas where they do roost, like the caller said, in uh, basically under the bark, under exfoliating bark of trees. And so they're hmm. tree roosters in the summer, but then they'll come back to the caves in the fall uh, and then eventually hibernate in the caves. Uh, the other bat that was mentioned, uh, the gray bat, is another federally endangered species, and it's a year-round resident in caves. So it, it doesn't always stay in the same caves, but it basically uh, will roost uh, the entire year in caves. And, and so every every day, or it comes back to the same area, uh, the same cave. Basically, yes, okay. yes. It may use different caves in different seasons, but it it pretty much will stay in a cave uh, during the day, go out and forage and insects at night, and come back. Okay. Um, and we are uh, really afraid of, of the cave bat because it, it and Indiana bats and and lots of other hibernating species because they they spend a prolonged period of time in an area where the fungus uh, proliferates or, or does really well, and so that's mm-hmm. why we're really concerned about numerous species of bats. Okay, makes sense. We've got another caller on the line. Let's get right to Bill. Hi, Bill. Hi. Go right ahead. Well, your your panelists there uh, just answered some of the things that I called to uh, to, uh, to inform uh, people about. That happens to me all the time on this show. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will con- uh, do have a couple other uh, uh, comments to make uh, re- regarding the subject. Um, I'm... Uh, an officer of the uh, Indiana Cave Survey and a member of other um, caving organizations, including Cave Research Foundation, and um, have been an active uh, in in uh, cave uh, um, you know mapping and, and research uh, for many years. <clears throat> and um, there, you know, there's a lot of misperception about this, and unfortunately, our our public officials are to some extent responsible for it because. Um, as one of your earlier callers said, they um, feel they need to react in some way. And even if what they're doing is totally ineffective and in many cases counterproductive, um, they, they feel they have to do something um, just to give the perception that, that they are doing anything, even though there's nothing they, they can do really works. Um, the um, idea that this was transmitted uh, by cavers from Europe has been uh, uh, pretty much debunked. Um, that was based on a, um, to some extent, on a, on a theory that somebody had that a conference was held in New York uh, just before this uh, um, uh, epidemic uh, uh, first occurred, and that cavers from Europe brought this to New York. Well, it turns out that that conference actually did not involve people going into caves. It was it was meetings. Um, and uh, and you know that, that there really was no connection there at all. Um, 
the idea that this could have been brought to Europe on on Caver's clothing is is fairly far fetched. I mean, imagine the scenario of this this European Caver taking his um, dirty stuff and taking it onto the plane and then going into a cave in New York. Um, on the other hand, there is a possible way this disease could have got from Europe. Um, bats often uh, will you know uh, roost in shipping containers and. Um, on ships and things like that. And, and I can certainly see a scenario where a uh, European bat, which are uh, immune to this uh, 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 fungus, at least the ones they have in Europe uh, that are similar to ours, um, the, 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 this bat takes a, takes a snooze in a shipping cart, and the next time he wakes up, he's in New York. Um, and and that, that certainly is something that is, is conceivable. But it certainly hasn't been proven, and, and as earlier callers said, the, the fungus in Europe is similar but not identical. Um, this disease is a horrible disease, and it's, it's spreading by bat transmission. So far, there has been no case where it appears likely that humans were involved in, in spreading the disease. Um, the the uh, uh, of all the caves been that have been affected. Over half of them have been closed to human visitation during the uh, relevant period of time, including the uh, cave in Indiana where it was first identified, um, uh, Endless Cave, which the DNR uh, controls. So that, you know, that's just a little bit more information um, you know, about this disease. And, and you know, it, it, it's going to run its course, and we, we really are have, have no way now of controlling or stopping it and uh you know it's unlikely that we'll we'll have anything um available to treat the disease in in the uh, relevant amount of time that you know this will have to run its course and and hopefully um enough of these species will will survive that they'll repopulate bill is a leader among the caving community what's your biggest concern about this well my my biggest concern is overreaction by public officials um, uh, cavers in Wisconsin fought a very expensive legal battle against the DNR or, or the equivalent thereof in, in Wisconsin, who had this idea that they would stop this from spreading to Wisconsin. First of all, there aren't many caves in Wisconsin. Um, by finding the bats with caves, capturing the bats, putting them in refrigerators over the winter, um, and that they would protect the bats this way. Um, they declared uh, the fungus, um, which I believe is a uh, uh, correct name is Geomyces destructans, and they, they declared that uh, fungus to be an invasive species, and so it was illegal for a bat to fly from another state into Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know... Things like that can happen, and the people who have supported bat research, who have protected caves from vandals and people who, um, you know, Ill- ill-informed people who, who think it's cool to kill bats, uh, these are the, are, are the organized active cavers, and they have been the people who have protected bats and, and been the friends of bats for, you know, a few decades now. And the, you know, trying to trying to exclude these people from caves um, is not going to help the situation. It, it, it's just going to make it worse because they aren't going to be keeping an eye on things. And, and, and the, you know, the vandals and idiots are going to be the ones who go in there. All right. Well, great information, Bill. Thanks so much for taking time to call in today. Thank you. Appreciate it. And don't forget those numbers are 812-855-0811 if you'd like to join the discussion or online on our live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And I was thinking earlier, too, wondering about some of these uh, private caves and cavers that are going out, and you talked about a decontamination process. Um, Are there specifics about what that means? Um, Basically, there are a a class of uh, chemicals, and I can't really... I think they're quaternary compounds. Unfortunately, I didn't look that mm-hmm. up before I came in. But there's a class of chemicals that you can you can treat your gear with, and then you basically 
uh, put it through a hot water cycle a couple of times when you when you wash your clothes. And you basically also just make sure that you um, that you don't use equipment in uncontaminated caves that you've used in contaminated caves. Mm, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a really important one. Regardless of what you do to, to contaminate, you just don't cross-contaminate between, you know, caves that don't have signs of, of the fungus. So. Do bats have any natural predators? Um, snakes in general uh, here in the U.S. Um, in general, because, they're, because they live in caves, because they can fly, because they fly at night, they, they avoid predation uh, to a large extent. But snakes will, will sometimes camp out at the edges of caves and try to snag bats. And also uh, uh, raptors like hawks. Yeah, I was thinking owls, maybe. They're up owls hunting as well. at night. Yeah. Uh, you'll find owl pellets with bat bones in them. And you also, you can, there are caves where you can go and there's so many bats coming out that they'll actually attract predators that you can watch and you can see caves going after these bats or sorry you can see hawks going after these bats oh my gosh so i guess i kind of take oh i'm sorry go ahead uh i think it's also worth mentioning uh that another growing threat to bats uh, not a natural predator but uh, a man-made device uh it's been shown that Wind turbines are causing high levels of mortality in bats in many areas that they're flying at night and don't detect or perceive the wind turbines, and they get basically smashed by the spinning blades. And hmm. um, there's quite a bit of concern about the potential effect on bat populations. And the point is just that there are other threats that uh, mm-hmm. bat populations face. Some of them are clearly um, human-based threats. All in all, this sounds like a rough time to be a bat. <laughs> Here's somebody, One of our callers called in and said the chemical is quaternary ammonia, and it is found in Formula 409. So there you go. Pretty common uh, household cleaner. And here's another question that came in uh, over the web. Uh, somebody wants to know, why are some bats that live in caves susceptible, but others are less affected? Um, it has to do with, in general, all, right now all the bats in, in the hibernacula that have white-nose syndrome, pretty much all the species are, are being affected. Um, the ones that are have a, a lower fatality rate, where, like, like I mentioned, a 50% mortality mm-hmm. rate, um, part of that is the way that they roost. They don't roost in really large clusters. They're more spread out within the cave. They might be at slightly different temperatures. Some bats prefer that exact temperature range that the, that the fungus is is most comfortable at, and other bats are slightly outside of that range. That's why uh, there might be a differential fatality between different species. Okay. Go ahead. I I think the hardest thing, too, to understand with all this is that there is just a big mystery about this, and we keep wanting to know, well, what are researchers doing, and and what's going on now? Um. There is a big mystery, and that's it's very important that everyone understand that. And like when we we've had several discussions today about the origin of the fungus and how it got here, and, and that's one major focus of research. People are trying to look at this fungus that's in um, geomyces that's in Europe and trying to determine what relationship it has to the what's in the United States and. There are some genetic techniques that you can use to do that. And you can also look how it spread once it got to the United States, if it was a, an isolated uh, introduction and then spread or if it was something else that happened. So that's one thing that's going on. A big part of the research effort is just monitoring uh, the caves out there that don't have white nose so we'll know as soon as it does. And also just monitoring what happens to populations when they're infected with white nose. So we know if certain species are immune or if certain species are more hard hit. Uh, than others. And then there's a, a limited amount of research going into just trying to figure out how the disease, what causes the disease, and, and they've made pretty good uh, uh, progress in that respect, how it's transmitted, and then also trying to find a way to kill mm. the fungus and then eventually find a way to, to make that into some type of a treatment that we can use. You mentioned earlier that they're waking up during their winter hibernation more often um, than they w- they did prior to infection um, by this. And so then they're using up more calories and basically starving to death because they have no other source of nourishment. What about, I mean, has anybody discussed uh, providing some alternative form of really, I guess it would be artificial, some form of nourishment to 
get them through this difficult time in the hopes that perhaps then, um, you know, they could survive this based on their own natural defenses at some point. Um, there's a couple things on that front. Number one, that there's been a discussion of setting up uh, zones and caves that are basically free of the of the, the fungus, and the bats can go to to kind of basically avoid the effects of it, at least while they're awake. Um, so there's some work on that. I've heard people talk about what, what your idea is of trying to provide some kind of food, like maybe mealworms or mm-hmm. insects. or um, And I think people have thought of that, but it, implementing it would be difficult. Yeah. And then getting the bass to actually take advantage of that food source in a lot of cases, because it's not going to be their natural food source right. most likely. So getting them to actually take advantage of it would be difficult. Um, so there's a lot of ideas being thrown around, but there's not necessarily a lot of money to do the research. And, and also there's just a lot of things that aren't feasible. Uh, yeah, it so. sounds like if they're waking up more often, there's something in the neuroscience that might be affected by all this. And so then, you know, just would they even know to eat, if, you know, if they're compromised in that way? So that's a happy little thought, isn't it? <laughs> Well, and you bring up a good point with, uh, you know, our down economy and budgets being cut and so forth. I assume a lot of the researchers are trying to do whatever they can to find money to say this is an important uh, area to fund. And Mm -hmm. are there certain things that people or the public can do to try and help that? Well, there's a couple things. There's a uh, there's Bat Conservation International. Uh, It's www.batcon.org. And they have a white nose syndrome uh, fund that you can contribute to. There's also a local at uh, Indiana State University. There's a Center for uh, North American Bat Research and Conservation, and they have also a fund that will help fund white nose uh, research. So you can contribute uh, money to both of those goals. And, and some of this research could be done uh, very cheaply. Other other types of research would be extremely expensive. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we should also mention, too, that there's also a stereotype with bats, and maybe we should have said this earlier on in, yeah. in, in the show, though, the people who are listening to this, not all bats will harm humans. Or think, When you think of a bat, most people may think of the vampire-type Halloween bat, and that's not really what we're talking about here, right? Right. Um, people are usually surprised when they see the size of bats. So they're, they're very small, um, and most of the species we have here in North America and in, in Indiana, are, they look almost exactly uh, the same. Um, and some of, the, some of the common myths, they, they really have no interest in, in people. So they, if I've stood out in front of caves that have hundreds of bats coming out, and they barely even touch me, much less mm-hmm. try to fly into my hair or anything like that. So um, <laughs> they, they really, for the most part, um, have no impact on, on humans whatsoever except for, for uh, beneficial things. Uh, that's not always the case, but pretty much in the North America that is true. What about rabies, Kevin? Right. Um, they do... They act as a vector for rabies, and they can transmit it, but it's just it's extremely unlikely for that to occur uh, in North America. It, it can happen, mm-hmm. but it's much less likely than another type of mammal uh, spreading rabies. We love um, to stand out in the yard and, and, at a desk and watch the bats circulate, mm-hmm. and I'm like, how hard would you have to try to get bit? I can't even imagine. Pretty much the only thing you need to remember is if you see a bat on the ground, it's obviously not healthy or it's injured. Uh, you shouldn't try to pick it up at all. And... And I hesitate to even say this because you shouldn't even and try to pick it up. But if you do, you have to make sure you have gloves on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can avoid being bitten that way. And that's pretty much the only real uh, danger you might run into with bats, I think. Okay. You know, we're, I'm so happy that you're here in the studio today, Dr. Clay. It seems like whenever there's an important um, bi- bio- biology-related question, you're the go-to guy for Indiana University. So thank you for sharing your, your wisdom with us today. What else is on the horizon along these lines that, as Hoosiers, we need to be concerned about? Uh, in terms of epidemics mm-hmm. or diseases? Yeah. Um, certainly there's a number of forests. Diseases, uh, dogwood, anthracnose, there's beech bark disease, um, hemlock, woolly adelgid, insect pests like the uh, emerald ash borer, um, very much like uh, the white nose syndrome has been moving to the south and to the west and recently was uh, identified, I believe, in Brown County State Park. So it's here and threatens the... um, 
persistence of ash trees in our area. The um, oh boy, what's the um, other caterpillar that eats trees? It's been so devastating out east. I'm blanking on the name right now. But these are naturally occurring phenomena, and usually uh, there is a recovery. There's a evolutionary changes in the populations of the hosts. Um, they can be disruptive, uh, but the long-term consequences are unknown. It is possible, we have no idea, it is possible that there have been outbreaks of this or similar diseases in bat populations in the past. Nobody ever noticed it before. So I think we are very sensitive uh, in today's environment to these types of um, wildlife diseases, uh, and uh, we have to think what role that our activities might be playing, whether these are natural phenomena. But uh, I think most importantly, um, epidemics in wild plants and animals are very difficult to control uh, no matter what. So nature is going to take her course one way or another. and It usually does. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Kevin, did you have word? We're about out of time. Any final thoughts you'd like to share? Um, just that I think we're we're so worried about it because it's had a pretty devastating effect in the Northeast. And then there's another fungus out there called the chytrid fungus that's had pretty significant impacts on amphibian populations. So I, I think people are generally concerned about it, but you do have to uh, you keep perspective and 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 try to just do what's best for the for the bats and the other uh, the cave populations and. Uh, um, that's really about all. Well, we need to thank all of the folks who called in today. We got some really good information from our listeners. We have, you'll have to come back. We have great listeners yes. on the show. Um, thank you for being time. with us today. No, thank you. And of course, special thanks to Dr. Kevin Murray with Western Ecosystems Technology, Inc. Thanks so much. And to Dr. Keith Clay from IU Biology. Thanks so much. And thanks for you for listening. Again, you can join us online at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition or join our live chat there as well. This show will also be archived as iTunes. If you just missed it or came and joined in the last part of it, we're always online. Thanks again for WFIU and Noon News and Noon Edition. Noon Edition. I'm Joe Wren. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.